Hi, and welcome to our podcast, Bodies and Souls, Conversations for the Jewish Woman. Welcome, everybody. Today, I am thrilled to be hosting Brianna Goldberg, who is a registered psychotherapist, a clinical director. I believe you're studying towards your doctorate as well, correct, Brianna? I am. I am, yes. Way to go. What an amazing thing to be doing with young kids and working full-time. That's unbelievable. Can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and how you got into the work that you're doing? For sure. So first of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's a really big honor and a privilege to be here. I started listening to your podcast about a year ago um, when I decided to paint my daughter's room. And anyone who's painted a room knows that it's a, it's a long process. And so I wanted to spend my time listening to something inspirational. So thank you for that. And I've been listening ever since. So just a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Brianna Goldberg. I'm a registered psychotherapist. As you mentioned, I'm also the clinic director at Better Days Counseling and Psychotherapy, which is a virtual psychotherapy clinic in Ontario that supports adults with a whole host of things. Some of those things include anxiety, depression, stress, burnout, relationship concerns, and grief and loss. Aside from my work in private practice, I'm a wife, I'm a mom of two precious toddlers, and I'm also completing my doctorate in clinical psychology um, here in Toronto. I have to say I've been pretty blessed um, that I've always known I've wanted to go into the field of mental health. While I can't remember exactly what precipitated it, I remember having this light bulb moment when I was about 12 or 13, and I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist. I think I initially gravitated towards psychiatry um, because at the time, the only avenue I knew to do how to do this work was through medicine. But as I got a bit older and I learned more about the field, I shifted my focus outside of medicine um, and decided to pursue the path of becoming a clinical psychologist. So from an educational perspective, I did my undergraduate degree in honors psychology at York University. And then I got married in the summer right after graduating. And so while I had my heart set out on clinical psychology, I shifted my focus um, and did a two years master's degree in counseling psychology at the University of Ottawa while my husband completed his training there. So during my master's, I was really lucky to be able to do my practicum at Jewish Family Services in Ottawa. And I got to work with some really incredible supervisors who really shaped the way that I practice. And I'm internally grateful for, for everything that they taught me. So after my master's, I registered to be a psychotherapist and I launched my own private practice. And I absolutely love the work that I do as a psychotherapist. It, it lights me up. And to me, it's such a privilege to be able to be with people, you know, in their hard moments and help them develop the skills and strategies they need to to be the best version of themselves um, and to feel good. So as you mentioned, I recently decided to go back to do my doctorate in clinical psychology. It's really been an opportunity to further refine my clinical skills and it will also allow me to make diagnoses and do psychological assessments. I'm very much looking forward to that part. And you know, even though I'm just a few months into the program, it's been an incredible learning experience and I feel really blessed to be able to work towards a lifelong goal of mine. That's amazing, Brianna. And I'm so excited to hear that we have an Ottawa connection because I had no idea that you lived in Ottawa and you did your studies in Ottawa. I obviously was in Toronto at that point, but I have deep roots in Ottawa. My family still lives there and I go there often. So that's exciting for me to hear that. Yeah, it's so funny. I would hear the last name KTAP all the time. You know, you'd come up, whether my husband worked with your, your dad, I think you worked with your dad sometimes in, in, in the hospital or just around the community. So it's, it was really exciting when, when we ran into each other uh, by chance. Yes, exactly. And hopefully we'll continue this connection. 
I want to dive right into our topic today. We're talking about women's mental health and coping skills. This is an especially relevant topic due to the war going on in Israel. I have to put so much effort into myself to stay sane, to stay regulated. I could very easily fall into a pit of despair, crying and looking at media or videos that I shouldn't be looking at. And I can imagine that women all over the world are also suffering and really trying to hold themselves together. So I I think it would be fitting to sort of start off our session with talking about women's mental health in general. Is there an actual genre of women's mental health? Is women's mental health different than men's or children's? Is there something specific to women and their mental health? You know, I just want to start off by saying that, you know, your experience is by no means unique, that a lot of people um, have been finding this time to be incredibly challenging. It's been a struggle. And so it's your question about whether women's mental health is, you know, a genre of its own. I kind of like to think of it as like an umbrella term, that there is so much that falls underneath it, but it's a really good way to kind of conceptualize or understand kind of the overall picture of what's going on. So women's mental health issues are really a unique area because women face their own unique challenges um, specific to their gender. Women are more likely to experience mental health problems such as depression, anxiety, and these issues can be impacted by hormonal changes, pregnancy and childbirth, and, and experiences of trauma. But it's more than that. I think the term has been gaining popularity in recent years called the mental load of motherhood. The mental load refers to this invisible and often unacknowledged cognitive and emotional labor that's involved in managing and organizing these various aspects of life. And so when you add a war on top of that and the mental and emotional component on top of it, it kind of just pushes people over the edge and really challenges um, their ability to cope and function. So interesting. So basically what you're describing is a woman who's already fragile, already overloaded with stresses and pressures. And then we have the war, which is a huge amount of stress and we don't want this woman to crack. And what would be signs of distress? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways, um, a lot of different signs um, that may come up. So things you may notice are changes in sleep patterns, finding yourself feeling overwhelmed or constantly worried having difficulty concentrating or making decisions, feeling hopeless, helpless about your future. People might also notice that they're withdrawn from social situations or activities that they once brought them joy. And also people might have unexplained changes in appetite or weight. And so, you know, these symptoms can be really distressing for a lot of individuals and they really impact our quality of life, our relationships and our ability to perform at work or at school. And so I think a lot of people have been saying that, you know, when the war broke out, they weren't able to function anymore, that it was really impacting their, their day-to-day -day life. And it was it was all consuming. What, somebody I know mentioned that she wasn't sleeping more than two hours a night. And I was really shocked because it seemed like she was functioning and she was managing, she was working, communicating, running her family, running her personal life. And yet when she said to me that she wasn't sleeping more than two hours, it made me stop because it made me realize that we're also masking these symptoms, meaning it could be that women are not eating or sleeping or depressed or they're crying, but in public, nobody would know that. 
Yeah, I think you make a really good point. That oftentimes it's hard to see that somebody's struggling. And unless we take the time to ask and ask people how they're doing and really and genuinely listen. Like sometimes we see people in the grocery store and we ask, how are you doing? But we're not really interested in hearing how they're doing and asking more about what's going on for them. But when we really take the time to listen, you'll see that a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are struggling at baseline. And then especially with, with everything going on. And you may not notice if you just kind of look at the surface. That's so uncomfortable. I was speaking with a friend the other day and she said to me, I look like I'm a different friend. She said, I look like I'm okay, but I'm not okay. And I didn't know what to respond to that. She's telling me she's not okay. I'm probably not close enough to her to really help her. But she's telling me, she's using these words to tell me. Um, in those moments, I think something that could be incredibly helpful is first of all, starting off with thanking them for sharing that with you, you know, that you that you really appreciate the time and that they're able to open up and tell you how they're how they're feeling. But even more than that, uh, one of the most powerful questions that you can ask is how can I best support you? And sometimes that will give you the the answers. They may say, I just need someone to listen. I just need a hug. You know, I just need X, Y, and Z. And oftentimes we in those moments we feel stuck because we don't know what to do for them. But A, just showing up and B seeing what they need and, and trying to help them in the ways that they do need. I think I might have missed the cue on that one. <laughs> She said, I'm not okay. And then I was sort of at loss for words. Like I didn't know how to help her. So I didn't say anything, but I probably should have said, how can I help you? How can I support you in retrospect? Yeah. Well, the thing with that is that like, it's never too late. Like you can go back and message this person and say, Hey, like, you know, I wish, I wish you're either, I wish you were signing differently, or I just wanted to check back in and see how you're doing. You know, when I saw you, you were having a really hard time. How, how can I support you? That it's, it's not a missed opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. Feeling a little better about that conversation. <laughs> but can we talk about, so we, we've discussed signs and factors that play into a woman and their mental health and how she might not be doing well. Can we focus on coping skills? What's a great toolbox for each and every one of us to be carrying around with us that we can sort of reach in and pull out different coping mechanisms to help us navigate, to help us wake up in the morning and to sort of get through the day? Yeah. So I love coping skills. I think that they are fantastic. And, and I really agree with what you said. It's so important to have this diverse toolbox of things that we can kind of pull out when things get hard. But before we jump into that, I'm hoping we can kind of address some of the things that are really important to have at the foundational level to have in place so that, you know, we can so that we can navigate hard times at baseline. And then we can kind of go on top and add some of those extra things. So some of these things include, you know, establishing and setting boundaries, prioritizing self-care, having non-goal-oriented outlets, um, and practicing self-compassion and forgiving ourselves for our mistakes. And so some of these things can be really simple, but they can be really hard to execute. And, and a lot of these things kind of lay the foundation of, of how we navigate what else is going on. So for example, setting healthy boundaries is really important when we're kind of looking at news articles or things like that, prioritizing self-care is taking kind of the time and space um, that we need to, to, to feel well and to recharge and having kind of things that kind of light us up and, and bring us that sense of enjoyment. So as for skills and techniques that can be used to manage emotions, thoughts, or behaviors during times of stress, anxiety, or adversity, adversity it really comes down to personal preference um, about what works best for the individual. So each person is unique. And so something that may work for one person may not work for another person. For example, some people really don't like mindfulness. So if you ask them to do yoga 
or to meditate, it's just not going to work. And so for that reason, I always recommend this like, variety of skills like you mentioned before. Um, so some examples of coping skills include breathing exercises, exercise or physical activity, meditation or mindfulness practices, journaling or writing, spending time in nature, seeking support from friends and family, having a creative outlet such as art, music, baking, practicing relaxation techniques like yoga or, or massage, or trying out and exploring new hobbies. My personal favorite is deep breathing. I absolutely love it because it could use, be used anywhere at any time. And it is an incredibly powerful tool to kind of regulate the nervous system. And it's, it's really helpful when you're having those anxious thoughts or feeling totally dysregulated. It kind of just calms you down. And, you know, within even within a few breaths, but they say three to five minutes um, is incredibly, incredibly powerful. The way that I'm imagining you describe these coping skills is almost like a foundation to house. We need our baseline skills. And then we have our higher order or higher level skills, but we have to first start with our baseline skills. And that worries me because I know I might be lacking in some of my baseline skills. For example, you talked about self-care and compassion. I'm really lousy in that area. I don't, I'm not kind enough to myself. I'm hard on myself and I don't give myself leeway. And I'm wondering if because that's an area of growth for me, see, even the way I'm trying to rephrase how I talk about myself, it's an area of growth, not an area of weakness. I'm wondering if I'm going to have a harder time tapping into the other skills that you described that will help me get through these times of war and feelings of, you know, my safety or uncertainty, feelings of fear and anxiety. Am I going to struggle? is my question. So I think it makes sense what you're saying, but I just want to say that, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't tap into these other extra things. It doesn't mean that the coping skills won't work. It may just mean that, you know, the war has impacted you a little bit greater. And for example, you may have to work a little bit harder um, than somebody who may already have some of those foundational skills in place um, to get to that point. But no, by no means does that mean that these coping skills will not work. They absolutely will work and they will help you get to a place of feeling regulated. And once, you know, you get to that place of feeling more regulated, then then maybe you'll be able to go work on some of those deeper skills to have that foundation so that you're not impacted as greatly by these hard moments or better or better said, you're able to navigate through these hard moments a little bit more successfully. Thank you for your comforting words. <laughs> I do wonder, I think if you ask most women on the street about how they're feeling about the war and what are they doing to help themselves? They could probably list some of the things that you said. I think at this in this day and age, mental health, there's a lot of awareness about mental health and there's a lot of there's a lot of education out there. And I guess what I'm wondering is the knowledge is stuck in our brains, but how do we bring it down into action? So for example, if I know you mentioned deep breathing, that deep breathing is so powerful, but I'm not accessing or using that tool. Or I mentioned before, I know the boundary of not scrolling, but at night when I'm tired or stressed, I will start my scrolling and start crying and really just get myself in a bad cycle. So 
How do we get the knowledge into actual implementation? I think your experience is shared by so many. It's, you know, these skills sound easy and they sound, some of them sound very easy. Just take some deep breaths, but the execution of them is, is where it gets tricky. And it, it takes being really intentional about trying these out and routinely trying in order for them to, to really work. I like to use the analogy of going to the gym with these coping skills. So for example, deep breathing, it's not going to work on the first try. Just like at the gym, we can't lift 150 pounds on day one. And that it takes this continual practicing and trying to implement it, you know, in order to kind of really, really reap the, the, the full effects of it. And that's not to say that, you know, we may not get some effect from it at the beginning, but it's this continual process of trying to integrate it and trial and error. I always tell my clients when they're feeling a nine out of 10 or a 10 on a 10, they're probably not going to get the same impact from these coping strategies as they would if they started them at a three out of 10 or a four out of 10. And so the war kind of creates a unique situation because we've been thrown into this hard time and that we have to work even harder for these coping strategies to work. And so it takes just really being really intentional and you know, continuously trying and that saying, you know, if you don't get it one night, if one night you're continuously scrolling, that doesn't mean that you can't try again the next night. And it, and it may be even just reducing it saying, let me scroll for a little bit less time and a little bit less time. And I think, you know, when we either work on incremental goals, like building up to what we want to do. So for example, building up for self-care for a certain number of days a week or reducing our scrolling. Um, so when we change kind of that perspective, you know, we're often able to get a lot further than when we say like, oh, like it never works for me. Or, you know, I always want to go for a walk, but I don't. And it kind of prevents us from even trying to do these things. One other thing that I found is I've had to be selective about the people I hang out with lately and the groups that I'm on, the, the WhatsApp groups that I'm on. And that, is because I'm fragile and I need to make sure that other people are not going to drag me down into anxiety or fear or negative predictions and being certain that the people I interact with are also trying their best to stay healthy and are aware, even if they're not accessing, but at least they're aware of the different coping skills that you've mentioned before is has been really a good influence on myself as well. And I think that's a really great example of setting those healthy boundaries. You know for yourself that, you know, it's too overwhelming to be around certain people or to consume certain information. And so you said, okay, I've got to I've got to limit it. And I and I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, and and also when it comes to kind of trauma reactions, everyone responds really differently. There are people who, you know, feel like they need to uh share all this information and do the advocacy work and that's really fair. And that plays an important role. And there are other people like myself as well, who feel like I need to set up boundaries. You know, I can't consume all this information and I, and that's okay too. And if there's like, there's no one right way to respond. And I feel like a lot of people have a lot of guilt about it. Something that I've, I've seen time and time again, are people saying like, I feel I don't, I'm having a hard time striking the balance between how much information I consume, what I expose myself to, to show that I care, but also protecting myself. And I think that the balance is, is an individual balance. And it, it really comes with checking in with ourselves and knowing what we need. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done. Another thing that I just sort of want to talk about, because you mentioned it, is this idea of guilt. So as women, we always are guilty about something or the other, right? But mm -hmm. I think with the war now, at least for myself, the guilt is magnified. And it's magnified because I wonder if I'm doing enough, if I'm helping enough, 
if I'm reaching out enough, if I'm doing my part in the war efforts. And sometimes I have to tell myself, Sarah, the way that you are being a part of the war effort in Israel is by waking up in the morning, getting your kids out of bed, going to school, running the school, creating a sense of normalcy and consistency and routine and safety for my students and my school. And that's my contribution. So, so at times I feel like maybe I'm not directly aiding the war effort, but then on the other hand, I am in my own little corner of the globe doing what I can do. I don't know if that's justifying or if that really is helping with the guilt. I'm not sure. I just want to say that like your own small corner of the world is not a small thing that has tremendous impact. People need you and, and they need that environment that you're offering. And so that is, that is a big part. And I think like you mentioned before, like guilt comes up for everybody. Like you, I, I also experienced a lot of guilt um, as a result of the war. I remember my daughter was going through her sleep regression and I was exhausted in the middle of the night. And I was like, how, how could I feel, how could I feel frustrated? I have a child who's safe and well in her bed. And so I think guilt is a feeling that's come up for a lot, a lot of people specifically related to the war. And you're right. Like we, we always question, am I doing enough? I think people really need to be mindful about what they can and they can't do. And they'll, and if you really tune into yourself, you'll, you'll know. Can I jump in for a minute actually about working through our guilt? Mm-hmm. So I was in Shul, it was Simchas Torah, right when we heard about the war. And one of the con- one of the members at Shul didn't feel that it was appropriate that we would be dancing and celebrating. And she felt like we should be saying to Hillam. So she mm-hmm. went over to the rabbi. She had a really heated discussion. And then the rabbi got up and he made an announcement in front of everyone in Shul. And he said, the Torahs are blueprint. So what does the Torah say? The Torah says there's a time to celebrate. We need to celebrate right now. We need to dance. That's the directive. That's our mitzvah. Hashem doesn't want us to sit around in Simchas Torah and weep. There will be a time for that too. But he made it very clear that the feeling of inadequacy or even guilt about our dancing is not coming from a positive place. The way that we can actually help our brothers and sisters in Israel is by celebrating Simchas Torah the way it should be celebrated. And then afterwards, obviously, the next day we all got together and we said to Hillam, and that was appropriate in that time and space. And I appreciated his message because very often it can get confusing, right? Like, I'm like, should I be enjoying this moment? Why should I be celebrating whatever it is that my family's, my son's birthday that we recently had? Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe it should be a time of deep depression. But I think that as Torah Jews, we know that depression is not going to help us fight this war with Israel, right? It's Yes, it's true. We need to be feel the pain and and feel the sorrow and and work to work with those feelings also no absolutely and 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 it could like you're saying like it could feel hard to feel like how can i be happy how can i celebrate but when we think about guilt you know we need to think about okay what is it telling us what is behind it and what do we do with it and getting stuck in that guilt isn't helpful and so you know our job like you're saying at that time was to to be happy to celebrate to do the things that they couldn't they, they can do and to do our part you know as jews outside of israel and 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 then figure out, okay, what can I do to kind of help the war effort? Kind of linking back to what you shared before, but like figuring out what your part is. Um, 
And it could be something very big or it could be something very small, but everything is impactful. And it's about kind of knowing okay, what can I do to help and, and focusing on kind of that action. I mean, and I think there's also time and space to process our feelings and to be in our feelings. But the goal is to move through our feelings and not get stuck in them. And that is why I know that when I am watching YouTube videos late at night, it is not healthy. Because the only thing it does to me is it makes me cry. So it doesn't get me galvanized to do more things for Israel and more mitzvahs and and get involved in more of the amazing, incredible organizations that are out there. Literally, I just sit there on my couch and fall apart. Yeah, yeah. You get stuck in it. It's just, it's, it's all... It's all consuming. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the psychological warfare. And I think that's what they want. They want us to get stuck. They want us to be afraid. But, you know, as Jewish people, you know, we do. And we do acts of chesed and we do kindness. And, you know, when we kind of focus on okay, what can we do, it makes us feel less helpless and kind of involved in, in something greater. And, and it connects to that sense of unity, being united with Paul Israel and, and doing our part. And it's tough. You know, we all get stuck. Um, sitting on our couch and scrolling, but even just noticing that you're doing that is is key because once you notice, then you could say, okay, let me find a coping strategy. Let me see what I can do, kind of move through it. I'm sure that you probably are getting clients that are coming to you very distressed about the war in Israel, feeling very unsafe. And I'm wondering if you have specific mental health strategies related to that, or do you give them your overall toolbox? So definitely there, there has been an increase of people reaching out for mental health support, you know, as a result of the war. And I think a really big thing is just giving people a space to feel their feelings. Um, kind of like we were talking about before, that guilt that they have, or, you know, even things like, am I, do- like, like, like we talked about, like, am I doing enough? You know, if I set these boundaries, does it say that I don't care? Am I overreacting? You know, is this, if my reaction is my response, does it really merit what happened? Like maybe I wasn't there, but I'm still feeling like I'm having PTSD-like symptoms. And so kind of just giving them a place to acknowledge their feelings, to have their feelings validated, and just to be in it. And then kind of figuring out, okay, what do we do with it? How do we move through this? Some of that could be, you know, ensuring that they're taking care of themselves. You know, I like to say to my clients, like sometimes we got to go back to the basics. We've got to make sure that you're eating well, that you're sleeping well, that you're exercising and that you're engaged in activities that, you know, bring you joy and that you find relaxing. And I think those extra activities are really what got lost. People have been spending a lot of time consuming, consuming this information and that there hasn't been time to do the things that they like um, and that bring them up. So that's a really big one. Another big piece is limiting exposure to media. People are constantly tuning into the news. There's always something, a new update going on. Or a new WhatsApp message, you know, with an update or a, a this or a that. And, and sometimes we have to set limits around it. I know that I myself have, have stopped using social media um, because it was too much for me. And I know that a lot of people have done that as well. Something I heard on a, on um, the Living Amuna podcast, which is really fantastic, is someone saying that, you know, before she checks the news, she'll say a prayer to him. And so kind of working to kind of channel that in a different way and, and seeing it as like, well, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do something, carrying that together. So those things have been really helpful for clients. And the first suggestion, I believe that you said, were giving yourself this space to feel your feelings. I remember so vividly the first or second week of the war, I have a psychotherapist that actually comes to my house and gives my kids a session. I have really good insurance, mental health insurance. So she gives 
each of my kids a session. And I literally snatched one of my kids sessions and I sat down in front of her and I gave myself permission to feel all the mix of feelings that I was feeling. And especially I was feeling very alone, very isolated, meaning I live in a from community. I'm part of a from community, but I also have one foot in a secular community because like you, I'm studying for my doctorate. And I was feeling alone and isolated and betrayed. And I needed that hour session with her to let these feelings pass through me. And now I'm fine. Unless <laughs> I'm I'm not fine if I go online at night, then I'm really not <laughs> fine. But other than that, I've come to a level of acceptance where I felt it. It was really strong. In fact, I remember my husband came home and he sees me and he was so confused. He said, I thought these sessions were for the kids. I'm like, I know I just needed, <laughs> I needed a session. She was in the house. I just grabbed it. But it, it really helped to have somebody who's, who sat there for that one hour and heard me out. And it's, you know, a lot of us have good friends or family members who we can talk to, but we rarely have that 50 minutes to sit and to just be able to express what we're feeling and to kind of just have that space to be and where all of our feelings are welcome and accepted and we don't have to filter our thoughts. And it allows us to go through the process of, of moving through. And Dr. Becky is a clinical psychologist who I think is really, really incredible. And she says, it's not feelings, it's, it's feeling alone in the feelings. And so when we're able to share that with somebody else and kind of get it out of our head, we're able to kind of work through it. And again, like it doesn't change what's going on in the world, but it sh- it shifts something within us, and it allows us to 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 keep on going and 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 to to feel just a little bit better. So true. Very wise words. I'm wondering when a woman or one of our listeners who's listening to us will need to take the step of going on SSRIs and medication, meaning. She's doing everything she can to help manage all of these very challenging emotions that we've described, the anxiety, the fear, the uncertainty, trepidation, the anger, the aloneness. And yet she's still not managing. She's still not coping. Like I talked about this one person who wasn't sleeping at night, but on a front level, it looked like she was managing. So either it's obvious that this woman isn't managing or it's not obvious but either way, it's just she's not able to get through her day-to-day tasks. So when would you say it would be necessary or is it necessary to start the route of medication? Mm-hmm. So for those of you who, are, who aren't familiar, so SSRI stand for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and it's essentially an antidepressant um, that's prescribed for anxiety and depression. As a registered psychotherapist, recommending or prescribing medication is not in my scope of practice. And so I always recommend that if people are feeling like things are just too much, that my skills aren't working right now, or therapy, you know, maybe I need something in addition to therapy, that I always recommend that people reach out to their to their family doctor. They're a really, really great resource. There'll be somebody who's able to kind of assess what's going on for the individual and, and help help them navigate that that world of, of medication. And and you know, if we're gonna say something like anxiety, for example, there's just different approaches and it depends on the individual. Some people just psychotherapy will be sufficient. They'll be able to kind of develop the skills that they need to be able to cope through, through challenging times and, and work through, through what's going on for them. 
there are other med people who, who may just, just take medication and not do psychotherapy. And that might be sufficient for them to kind of get through and navigate. And, and then there are other people who need a combination of medication and psychotherapy um, in order to, to get to a place where, where they feel like they can cope and where they can navigate hard times. And so um, you know, anyone who is kind of questioning, should I, shouldn't, shouldn't I? Speak to your doctor. You know, there's there's no harm. They do this day in and day out, and 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 medication can be really helpful for the right for the right person. Let's talk more about self care. Self care. I love self care. What does self care mean? Is it expensive? Is it timely? Is it a luxury for a woman who's really stretched and doesn't have a lot of resources? Does that mean that self care is not for her? What what is it all about? Yeah, I think you raised some really interesting points um, that a lot of people feel um, like, you know, I'm too overwhelmed, I don't have time for self care, or, you know, self care means like booking a massage or going on a vacation, and they kind of just write it off as not something that they can do, or it's not within their means. But really, self care could be anything. Um, It could be something as simple as, you know, having your favorite tea, taking a hot shower, going for a walk, Really, it is anything that brings you joy and fills you up. And so when it comes to self-care, I like to use the analogy of a car. You know, the car can't function if it doesn't have any gas. And so, you know, we always, oftentimes we have this tendency to keep pushing and pushing without giving to ourselves, without filling up, you know, our tank. Um, but it, it means that we're not able to kind of show up in the way that we want for for the ones that, for the people who we want. It means, it means that we're often not able to show up in the way that we want. And so... Really, self-care should be something that we do day in and day out. Um, it should be a daily practice um, because it is really powerful for our mental health um, and it really improves our overall quality of life. However, I recognize that for a lot of people, that is really hard to do. There are a lot of emotions that kind of come up when we think about self-care. So, you know, feelings of guilt about taking time for ourselves, difficulty prioritizing our needs over the needs of others and just like honestly feeling overwhelmed by all of the responsibilities but like how am I going to even carve out five minutes of time for ourselves so in in those cases you know while we should be striving for daily at the very least when you're noticing that things are getting hard that you're struggling it's a good indicator to ask yourself when was the last time that I did some self-care for myself and in those moments just try one small thing or maybe multiple things to really give to yourself because it's really essential. And it, and it is one of the most powerful tools when we are feeling kind of very overwhelmed or feeling like our mental health is struggling. You know, we got to go back to our basics and, and self-care is, is a basic. I always say to myself, oh, I'm not high maintenance. I'm sort of not one of these women who needs to go to the spa or spend money shopping. I'm My husband's lucky. But then I came to realize that I do have needs, but just not the stereotypical needs that you might think that is the definition of self-care, meaning give me a good novel. I'm in heaven, like beyond. I'll lose myself. That the equivalent of reading a good book for me is like, I don't know, going on vacation and, and staying in a five-star resort. So every woman's needs are different and it's, it doesn't have to be expensive. Exactly. And I know for those, those listening, they can't, it's your face right now. But when you talk about that, your face lights up. It is. It looks like it's something that really recharges you and energizes you. And so for you, that's the definition of self-care. And so it, it's very, very, it depends on the person. Um, and so it's really important to kind of know ourselves and tune into our own needs and, and not just say, oh, this works for, for somebody else. So obviously it should work for me. 
And then when we do that, sometimes we're left wondering, like, why is it not working? You know, some people love getting their nails done. Some people hate it. And it's like going to the dentist for them. So for them, that's not self-care, even though some people might classify it as self-care. And another important thing to remember here is that, like, it's also important to have a, like, a, a, a list of things that, that you find. It's important to have a list of things that are self-care for you, that sometimes certain things won't work and you'll need to try other skills. And so it kind of goes along with the coping strategies that we tried before, um, that the key is to really just have a diverse list, a variety of things that we can try. And sometimes it's not going to be that one. It's not going to be one thing. Uh, it's going to be, we're going to have to layer on the the different layers of self-care to, to kind of help stabilize us and help us feel good. Gosh, this conversation is so important and relevant and timely. And I think every single person listening to this is going to come away and likely change one part of their life for the better. Thank you, Brianna. Thank you for giving of your expertise and thank you for giving of your knowledge. And I think all of us really need to implement as much of these strategies as possible, as many as the strategies that you mentioned. Is there one last thing before we say goodbye that you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I think that we often have a tendency to compare our struggles to other people. Um, and I think that's this is especially relevant to what's going on in the world. You know, for example, you know, how could my struggles here, you know, in Toronto, you know, not living in a war zone, how could that compare to people who are in Israel or have, you know, loved ones on the front lines or have lost people or have, people, or have relatives who, who are who are missing or kidnapped. But I think it's really important to remember that, you know, everyone's situation is unique um, and that we all have our own, you know, set of circumstances and challenges that we're facing. You know, while it's really hard not to compare struggling um, to other people's experiences, that it's really not, it's not helpful. And it, it can often lead us to minimize our struggles, you know, that they're not as significant or as valid, but they are, you know, what you're experiencing is real and, and it's important. And so, you know, we need to be able to kind of give the space to what, what's going on for us. So true. Now you, I understand you give virtual therapy, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I offer virtual psychotherapy. So if our listeners want to book a session with you or get in touch with you, what is the best way that they can do that? For those of you looking for additional support, you can absolutely reach out to us at the clinic and we'd be happy to schedule you in with one of our therapists. We offer daytime, evening, and weekend availability to make sure that everybody can find a time that works with their busy schedule. You can reach out to us on our website at betterdaystherapy.com or you can send us an email at info at betterdaystherapy.com. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed and grew. Original music of Shamil's Niggin provided by Hazan David Katak. We look forward to your input, feedback, and suggestions. We also have partnership opportunities available. Please email info at bodiessouls.com. Again, info at bodiessouls.com with two S's. Thank you. Thank you.